Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. A bridge connecting Russia and Crimea is attacked, damaging a key Russian supply route. Meanwhile, Russia pulls out of the Black Sea grain deal. What will this mean for the global food supply? In the U.S., the latest federal campaign finance data is in for the 2024 presidential hopefuls. Who received the most do donations this quarter? And whose fundraising is at the bottom of the pack? A fiery comment from a progressive Democrat quickly led to a backlash, putting Democrats on defense. Find out what the chair of the Progressive Caucus said about Israel and how her own party is responding. Another round of air quality alerts. 70 million Americans are warned about smoke from Canada's record-breaking wildfires. Find out if it'll be as bad as it was in June. And flights grounded, passengers stranded. Find out how storms in the Northeast brought major U.S. airports to a standstill. Now zooming in on the war in Ukraine, a bridge connecting the Crimean Peninsula to the Russian mainland came under attack today and a portion of it was destroyed. This comes on the same day Russia suspended a deal that lets Ukraine export grain through the Black Sea. Vehicle traffic on the Kerch Bridge, which links the Russian mainland to Crimea, came to a standstill Monday after one of its sections was blown up. Russian officials said two people were killed and a girl was injured. Russia is calling the incident a terrorist attack and has launched a criminal investigation. As part of the criminal case, the necessary examinations have been appointed. The investigation establishes that persons from the Ukrainian security services and special forces were involved in the organization and execution of this crime. Rail traffic on the bridge resumed after about six hours. This was the second major attack on the bridge since October, when a truck bomb blew up two of its sections. The bridge serves as a key supply route for Russian forces in the conflict with Ukraine. It's also a symbol of Russia's control over Crimea, which it annexed in 2014. Also on Monday, Russia suspended the wartime deal that allows Ukrainian grain to be exported to the world market through the Black Sea. The Kremlin said this action is unrelated to the attack on the bridge. As soon as the stipulated part of the Black Sea agreement related to Russia is fulfilled, Russia will immediately return to the implementation of the deal. The United Nations and Turkey helped broker the Black Sea Grain Initiative last summer. The deal provides assurances that ships wouldn't be attacked entering and leaving Ukrainian ports. Russia is now out of the deal until its demands to get Russian agriculture shipments to the world are met. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken reacted to the announcement Monday. The bottom line is it's unconscionable. Uh, should not happen. Uh, this should be restored as quickly as possible. And I hope that every country is watching this very closely. Blinken said Russia will be responsible for denying food to people around the world who are in need and contributing to rising food prices. Reporting by Ellison Lee, NTD News. How difficult will it be for countries to get around Russia's backing out of the grain deal? NTD Business's Don Ma speaks with an economist in Europe. And here with me is Daniel Lakaya, chief economist at Tress's Hedge Fund. Um, Daniel, so I was thinking, let's set the stage a little bit here. Now, Russia backed out of this deal. How important is it? 
It is exceedingly important because Russia and Ukraine account in some of emerging economies for 80% of the imports of grain and of a cereal. It is uh, therefore a very radical decision that can make a very significant problem, can create a very significant problem for many uh, developing economies. And uh, we we tend to forget how important grain and cereals are in the overall economy for the primary sector. So uh, it's going to create a very significant tightness if they back out for a prolonged period of time and if they don't turn back. Uh, and it will create a very significant problem precisely in a year in which the uh, farming and the crops all over the world have not been particularly good. So uh, the tightness in the supply chain is very evident, and therefore it is no surprise that uh, wheat prices, for example, in uh, commodity markets have risen dramatically on the news. So to be clear, what you're saying is this is going to put put a bottleneck on supply, and this could impact a, a range of areas. Could you tell us what exactly will be the impact if supply sh uh, shrinks? Well, uh, very, very important. For example, cattle. Um, it's going to be very difficult to feed cattle. It's going to be very, very difficult for many of the developing economies to get the cereals and grains that they require for their daily uh, food supply. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's not just for humans, which is already a very important uh, problem. It's for the uh, for the overall economy. We tend to forget sometimes how important wheat is in numerous areas of the of the primary sector. So, as I said before, there are some um, developing economies that uh, rely between 70 to 80 percent on the imports from Ukraine and Russia. Uh, the uh, crop season in Ukraine obviously has been exceedingly poor, and in other developed economies that could offset that impact has also been quite weak. Therefore, there is no evident way to offset the impact of Russia suddenly deciding to back out of this agreement. Are you saying there's really no way to circumvent this? Virtually none. To fully offset the impact of Russia is virtually impossible globally today. Virtually impossible. It is true that there can be efforts made to bring some of the supply from Latin America and other economies that may help reduce the impact. But offset it, it's virtually impossible. All right, Daniel Lacaye, Tress's hedge fund. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. President Biden's re-election campaign reportedly getting fewer donations than it did at the beginning of the 2020 race. Meanwhile, Democrats are voicing concern over a potential third-party unity ticket for the upcoming election. Here are the details. President Biden and the Democratic National Committee so far have raised more than $72 million for his re-election bid. However, there are doubts about Biden's popularity. His approval rating is in the low 40s, partly due to concerns about his age and mental capacity. 
So far, small-dollar donations from the grassroots averaged $39 among nearly 400,000 contributors in the second quarter. The New York Times commented on that, saying the small-dollar online money spigot that helped Mr. Biden smash fundraising records during his 2020 presidential campaign has not yet turned on. A longtime Democratic fundraiser told CNN, I'm not sure which is harder, getting people to focus on the campaign or getting people excited about it. Meanwhile, Democratic Senator Joe Manchin is headlining an event at the bipartisan No Labels group on Monday night. The group has been pushing a unity ticket as a third option in the presidential election. Senator Manchin has not yet announced if he'll run for re-election. Some speculate he might instead announce a presidential bid as a third-party candidate. Polls indicate that a no-labels ticket could become a problem for Biden, but help former President Trump. That's if he wins the GOP nomination. A group of operatives from both parties is seeking to derail a no-labels candidacy. They released a survey of swing states about a potential Biden-Trump no-labels matchup. It found that no-labels draws 13 points from Biden and 8 points from Trump. In the seven swing states, a no-labels ticket swings the vote from Biden to Trump by an average of 4.3 percentage points per state. That's why some Democrats are against a no-labels ticket. Democratic Senator Chris Van Hollen told The Hill it's pretty clear that a no-labels candidate would help re-elect Donald Trump. That path is not a path to winning. It's a path to spoiling the election for Joe Biden and electing Donald Trump. However, the No Labels co-chairman on Sunday said that the group might stay out of the 2024 U.S. presidential race. That's if polling shows its candidate would play a spoiler role by helping to elect either the Democratic or Republican nominee. And as Republican nominee candidates gear up for the first debate in August, the recent campaign finance data shows former President Trump has raised the most cash in the second quarter, which is April through June. NTD's Arlene Richards reviews the top fundraisers and which candidates are eligible to debate. That's right, Steph. The latest Federal Election Commission data shows the former president has raised nearly $36 million to date. He's leading Governor Ron DeSantis by more than $15 million. DeSantis has raised over $20 million, but he's spent more than $8 million since he entered the race in late May. And now he's cutting back on staff. Candidates spend donations on a number of expenses, including travel, payroll, and advertising. As of June 30th, entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy is holding his own at just over $19 million raised. Other top candidates have raised between $7 million and $11 million. Former Vice President Mike Pence remains at the bottom half of the pack with less than $1.2 million raised. But campaign financing alone won't get candidates to the debate stage. The Republican National Committee has three requirements. One, raise money from a minimum of 40,000 donors. Two, register 1% or above in three national polls or two national polls and one early voting state poll. And three, pledge to back the GOP nominee. The qualifying polls must be conducted after July 1st. A morning consult poll released last week is one of the first national polls approved by the committee. 56% of GOP primary voters polled said they would vote for Trump in 2024. DeSantis held a distant second at 17%. Ramaswamy got third place with 8%, overtaking Pence. Other candidates who made the cut include Pence, Nikki Haley, Senator Tim Scott, Chris Christie, and Asa Hutchinson.
Some candidates eager to make the debate stage have to be creative to secure 40,000 donors. For example, Ramaswamy recruited people to raise money for him, and he's willing to let them keep 10% of what they get from donors. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum is seeking donations of as little as $1 and offering a $20 MasterCard or Visa gift card in return. It's unclear whether or not these tactics would pass muster with the Federal Election Commission, but so far there haven't been any legal or ethical challenges. It's also not clear whether or not all of the candidates have pledged to support the winning nominee. Chris Christie has said he could never support Trump again, and Trump himself has yet to sign the pledge. Step. Thanks, Arlene. And in other political news, Democrats quick to alleviate any concerns about where the party stands on support for Israel. This after a vocal progressive Democrat made stark remarks against the nation. NTD's Melina Weiskup has the story. Just days before Israel's president is set to give a speech before a joint session of the U.S. Congress, the chairwoman of the Congressional Progressive Caucus said this to a group of pro-Palestinian demonstrators. We have been fighting to make it clear that Israel is a racist state. Immediately drawing a response from Democrat leadership defending support for the Jewish Democratic nation. Leader Hakeem Jeffries alongside his leadership team writing, Israel is not a racist state. We are determined to make sure support for Israel in Congress remains strongly bipartisan. Since Israel's founding, both Jewish and non-Jewish citizens of Israel are treated equally. They have equal access to the courts, equal access to public education, equal access to health care, and anti-Zionism is the anti-Semitism of the 21st century. Congresswoman Jayapal later retracted her comments, calling them an attempt to diffuse a tense situation and clarifying that, quote, I do not believe the idea of Israel as a nation is racist, but that Prime Minister Netanyahu's policies are. Do you think that that distinction at all mitigates the impacts of her comments? No, that distinction actually compounds her comments, because if you look at what Prime Minister Netanyahu has done, um, she's referring to the so-called settlers, um, our Jewish families and Jewish businesses that are merely trying to thrive in the heart of the homeland of the Jewish people in Judea and Samaria. Jewish people have lived there for thousands of years. It's well documented. Speaker Kevin McCarthy, when asked if the GOP would take action against the congresswoman because of her comments, had this to say. The only time action has ever been taken is when we had to take the action. The most recent action that McCarthy is referring to there is when the House voted to remove Congresswoman Ilhan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee for previous anti-Semitic comments that she made. And Omar, as well as others, are expected to protest this joint session of Congress by Israel's president this week. Meanwhile, other Democrats are really eager to solidify their support for Israel. Reportedly, a group of Jewish Democrats are writing a draft statement directly criticizing Jayapal's comments here. That draft was obtained by Jewish Insider, and they're expected to say something along the lines of, we will never allow anti-Zionist voices that embolden anti-Semitism to hijack the Democratic Party. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. And in weather, Americans around the nation are once again dealing with smoke from the wildfires burning in Canada. Around 70 million people in the U.S. are under air quality alerts. 
The air quality health advisories cover more than a dozen states from Montana to Vermont and as far south as Tennessee. Around 70 million people are seeing decreased visibility and poor air quality, including residents of Chicago, Detroit, New York, St. Louis and Cleveland. According to the Weather Prediction Center, the smoke could linger into Tuesday across parts of the East Coast. But it's not forecast to reach the same hazardous levels as it did in early June. Canada is experiencing its worst fire season on record. About 25 million acres have burned so far this year, with no end in sight. And flooding struck multiple states over the weekend, turning deadly in Pennsylvania. At least five people were swept away and killed there by a flash flood on Saturday. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the extreme weather. Rescuers are still searching for a nine-month-old boy and his two-year-old sister. Their mother has already been found dead. Authorities say the children were visiting from Charleston, South Carolina with their family. They were all headed to a barbecue when the flash flood struck. The father and grandmother made it to safety with a four-year-old. The mother swept away with the two younger children by floodwaters. The power of the flooding in Pennsylvania is evident here. Roads can be seen ripped apart as if made from paper. Cars tossed about like toy rowboats, with one reportedly found a mile and a half from where a flash flood whisked it off. Flooding struck throughout the Northeast, including Connecticut. Firefighters in Bristol rescued at least half a dozen people there from floodwaters on Sunday. They warn drivers it's a big mistake if you see standing water on a road and think you can make it across. This shot from an emergency vehicle shows the extremely flooded streets they were forced to navigate to rescue those in need. This house stands in the line of fire, of water determined to wash out anything in its path. Concrete, asphalt and metal turn out to be no match for the relentless push of water. Road crews have their work cut out for them in the coming months. Over in New Hampshire, water demonstrated it always finds a way as excessive rains give birth to new mountainside creeks. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And the ripple effects of severe weather are still being felt by air travelers across the U.S. Thunderstorms yesterday have led to significant flight delays and cancellations. NTD's Jason Perry reports. Hello everyone, I'm here at Newark Liberty International Airport in New Jersey where flights are still being delayed. Severe weather on Sunday caused major flight disruptions across the U.S. Newark was one of the major airports that had to stop all planes from taking off or landing due to the severe thunderstorms, according to the Federal Aviation Administration. Some of the other airports that were put on ground stops were New York City's LaGuardia and JFK and Boston's Logan International. And by the end of Sunday, over 1,700 flights around the U.S. were canceled, according to FlightAware.com. However, things have gotten a little better on Monday, when FlightAware says there have been over 300 flight cancellations and over 5,000 delays as of Monday afternoon. I spoke with a man from Canada who was affected by the recent flight disruptions. Um, I was actually traveling back home to Toronto, Canada, so my flight, flight was originally yesterday. But somehow I think in the morning it got canceled. Somehow they didn't explain <laughs> the reason why. But luckily I actually uh, quickly got rebooked for today's flight. Right. Well, some people seem more upset. You seem like kind of okay that your flight was canceled. Uh, on the flip side, I got another day staying in New York. 
<laughs> right, why not, right? So uh, hopefully I'm able to get back home. Several flights are still being delayed today. So before you pack your bags and head to the airport, be sure to check your flight status. Jason Perry, NTD News, New Jersey. Coming up, it's getting hot across the country with summer weather in full swing. As triple digits scorch parts of Southern California, firefighters are out battling blazes. And could Hollywood collapse as one media mogul is warning? We have analysis from an Oscar-nominated screenwriter after the break. We hope everyone's staying hydrated and cool. Many parts of the globe hit over 100 degrees Fahrenheit over the weekend, breaking record temperatures, with California's Death Valley reaching nearly 130 degrees. At the same time, California firefighters were busy putting out wildfires in the state. Amid the excessive heat warning in the southwestern part of the U.S., Southern California's Riverside County battled with several wildfires over the weekend. Fire officials gave an update on the Riverside County fires as of Monday. Taking the Highland incident, that fire is currently at 105 acres and 98% containment. All evacuation orders, warnings, and road closures have been lifted. Next, we'll swing on to over to the Ritchie incident. That fire is currently at 437 acres and 85% containment. There was also the large 7,950 acres rabbit fire, which is at 35% containment as of Monday, according to CAL FIRE. And that is due to all of the efforts by all of our firefighters. They've done an outstanding job of strengthening our control lines and mopping up. Meanwhile, multiple areas reached record level temperatures. According to the National Weather Service, a record of 110 degrees Fahrenheit was set at Lancaster on Sunday, breaking the old record of 109 set in 1960. Sandberg also had a record-breaking 99 degrees. Even more scorching was Furnace Creek at Death Valley National Park, known as the hottest place on earth and driest place in North America. Oh, your arms are burning, uh, your face is burning. Death Valley's digital thermometer hit over 130 degrees at one point on Sunday, but it's not an official reading. The National Weather Service said the highest temperature recorded on Sunday was 128 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's why on Sunday afternoon, dozens of people gathered around the thermometer, just like William Cadwallader who is a visitor from Las Vegas. He shares his ice with other people so that their phones can work in the heat and take pictures. So I bring out about 10 to 15 Ziplocs filled with ice and I have them right by the temperature and as people have an issue with their phone, I offer them a Ziploc with ice just to keep so they can still take in the picture because that's one of the hardest thing. If it's ready to go and the temperature is there and you can't take a picture, that's very disappointing. Now, the world record highest air temperature of 134 degrees Fahrenheit was recorded at Furnace Creek on July 10, 1913. David Lamb, Entity News, California. And over on the East Coast, the New York City Police Department has a new commissioner. Mayor Eric Adams appointed Edward Caban to the post today. Commissioner Caban is truly one of New York's finest. 
a leader who understands the importance of both safety and justice. I'm acutely aware of the shoes I must fill. Commissioner Sewell smashed the glass ceiling that lingered on for far too long. Given how many great leaders of Hispanic descent have come before me in the NYPD, to be the first Hispanic police commissioner is an honor of the highest measure. Caban started his career as a rookie police officer in 1991 at the precinct in the Bronx. He's the son of a transit police detective. As commissioner, he'll lead the largest police department in the country, overseeing more than 33,000 uniformed officers and 17,000 civilian employees. Caban has served as acting police commissioner since Sewell resigned last month after serving 18 months in the job. Sewell didn't give a reason for her departure. And in entertainment news, as writers and actors continue to strike, the effect on the industry could be far-reaching. Earlier today, I spoke with Oscar-nominated screenwriter and now Epic Times editor-at-large, Roger Simon, for his observations amid a new warning from billionaire media mogul Barry Diller that the strikes could have devastating effects. Roger, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Inflation, AI, these are real concerns for the writers and actors of today's Hollywood. What are you hearing from your former colleagues in the industry? Well, my former colleagues are mostly retired, but nevertheless, uh, in fact, people retire very early from uh, screenwriting uh, because the thinking is that the audience is younger, and that's a correct thinking. But what, what what's really going on, though, is not exactly what seems to be going on. In other words, this is the end of Hollywood as we knew it um, being expressed in a in a labor fight. The reason this strike is going on so long is people don't know what they're fighting about. They don't know if AI uh, can really write a screenplay or a television play. Uh, and inflation, of course, is coming to all businesses right now. But, but, but AI, which is, I think, spooks the writers more than anything else because you know, most writers have thought of themselves as, well, I'm an intellectual, I'm a smart guy, a woman, and blah, blah, blah. And yet, oh, a machine can do what I did? You know, where's the Dostoevsky machine and the Tolstoy machine that will write where at war and peace, let alone the Godfather or Chinatown? A profound question right there. So do you think that Hollywood could collapse as media mogul Barry Diller is warning? Yeah, Barry Diller is talking about And Barry Diller, who I knew slightly years ago, is one of the smartest of the moguls and one who really sees things, you know, as they say, macro. And and I think he, his fears are, are, are real and they're good and they're true. And I know that he wants to... Uh, cut some inflated salaries, including for executives and actors who get paid more money, you know, than uh, the Empire State Building that's behind your head. And looking to the future, Christian Toto, the host of the Hollywood and Toto podcast, thinks the current lack of Hollywood-made content will lead viewers to seek out alternative content from conservative media. Do you hey. think the strikes might have that effect? Yes. I agree with Christian on that, but here's the caveat. As things spread out and balkanize, which they are doing, uh, they will be less important. Because in the old days, when I was 
uh, very active, and when I was actually a, uh, a negotiator for the guild and a and a member of the board of directors, movies like The Godfather and Chinatown that I referenced, or Lawrence of Arabia, were cultural landmarks. This is gone. How will it pan out? Well, that's more of a practical question, and I think that my guess is that September is the point where this will resolve, uh, simply because everybody's on vacation, vacation in August, and you know things drag on in the heat, uh, which is across America right now. And I think that uh, if you're looking at a target, try September. But I'm not Nostradamus. All right, Roger Simon, great to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Fun. When we return, search efforts are underway in South Korea following severe flooding. With at least 12 people dead, experts are now talking about how to prevent the next disaster. And experts warn that China is facing its greatest economic challenges in decades. We speak with an expert on the state of China's economy and how it could impact relations with the U.S. These stories and more here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. A section of the bridge connecting Russia's mainland with Crimea was blown up. Also today, Russia suspended the Black Sea Grain Agreement, which will likely have a global impact. Progressive Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal stirring up controversy as she calls Israel a racist nation. The House Democratic leadership was quick to respond. 70 million Americans are under air quality alerts again as smoke from Canadian wildfires sweeps across the continent. Canada is currently dealing with its worst wildfire season. Moving on, over the last decade, millions of emails intended for Pentagon employees were inadvertently sent to email accounts in the African nation of Mali. And it's all due to a typo. The emails were intended for the owners of .mil email accounts, the internet domain owned by the U.S. military. But because of the typos, they were instead sent to the .ml domain, which handles email accounts in the West African country of Mali. A Dutch company discovered the problem while managing the Mali domain. In some cases, sensitive information was revealed, like hotel reservations for senior U.S. military officials. This could pose national security risks because the personal information in the emails could be used for targeted cyber attacks or to track the movements of Pentagon personnel. The Pentagon said it's aware of the issue and is taking it seriously. And search efforts in South Korea continue as authorities look for more victims of a flash flood that occurred Saturday. The deluge killed at least 12 people about 70 miles south of Seoul. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the latest. A flash flood trapped 16 vehicles in a tunnel on Saturday after a river levee collapsed in Chongju. The disaster killed 12 people, including three bodies found overnight. Simply put, the primary cause was the collapse of the temporary riverbank, which led to the overflow of excessive flood water. The next primary cause would be the failure to take preventative measures despite the presence of such risk factors, which resulted in the damage. 
South Korea has recently vowed to step up readiness for extreme weather. Experts say not enough of the budget is spent to prepare for these kinds of disasters, even as more sudden and torrential rain is expected in the coming decades. Local governments allocate 1% to 2% of their budget to disaster funds every year. When it comes to allocating a disaster budget, local governments use 30% of that for prevention measures and 70% is used for recovery after disasters, whereas in advanced countries, they allocate 70% for prevention and 30% for recovery. Days of intense rain, landslides and floods in the country's central region have left 40 people dead. People like to use expressions such as rapid response, emergency recovery, but that's wrong. Climate disasters are already underway, so now if you put money into prevention projects, you can do it at half the cost of recovery projects. Officials have promised to spend more on natural disaster prevention. South Korea spent about $1.58 billion in 2022, 20 percent higher than the previous year, according to the Interior Ministry. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And looking at China, which has some analysts flagging a declining economy on the verge of deflation. We turn now to analysis from foreign policy expert James Gorey. He authored the book The China Crisis and now publishes his writings with The Epic Times and The Banana Republican. Let's see that now. James, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Experts are warning that China's economy is facing its biggest challenge in decades. How bad is it, in your view, and what's behind this trend? Well, I think it's very bad. I think China uh, may be facing their kind of glass-nosed perestroika moment in that, you know, the old USSR had that kind of problem where nothing they could do could stop the fall. Um, the macroeconomic structure of China is very command economy, relies on corruption, graft, um, coercion, um, but, and therefore it's inefficient and it's, it's unsustainable. Like all command economies, They're, after a while they just run out of they run out of steam because there's not enough uh, innovation, there's not enough freedom to to allow you know the natural talents to come out and create create new areas of of, of activity and so forth. Right. So some experts have linked declining social confidence in China to the declining economic confidence. Would this relate back to what you were just speaking about? Sure. I mean, in the old days when China was just opening up, they used to say, "I'd rather." cry in your BMW than laugh on your bicycle. In other words, you have, the young people were looking at, at material wealth as, as you know, the priority, as was the state. Now, the young people are the last generation, so to speak. They're not having kids. They have no faith in the CCP. They don't believe the, the propaganda that comes out. So there's, there's a, a malaise, a, a last generation mindset that, uh, that they're really, really seeing manifest. And, and that's, that's a function of the failure of the CCP. It's not the other way around. Now, China's been gearing up for conflict. Many observers warn that it could try to take over Taiwan in the coming months or years. How do you think a weaker financial footing could impact these ambitions? I, I think they call it the Galtieri moment, where uh, Argentina wasn't doing so well, so they invaded the Falklands. Um, I look at more as if a... Um, it, it may be that, certainly, because you've got a lot of folks that are unemployed or underemployed. The, the youth rate, unemployment rate, is about 20%. That's probably low. It's probably, you could probably add another 10% of that. So I would look at China, you know, Xi Jinping, it's, it's, he owns the economy. He's got to have, he's got to, he's got to have a victory. And I think Taiwan will be the next, uh, probably the next, his next project, his next victory.
All right. Now, the Biden administration has been ramping up talks with the regime after a prolonged hiatus. How do you expect China's economic decline to impact relations with the U.S.? Um, I think the U.S. is um, doing something very un unwise. We're going to them. We're being treated as a second-class power. We're, we're not just, just the formalities of how the economies and how the uh, rather how the, the arrangements of, of the meetings are taking place. It's very condescending on the on the part of China. Uh, I, I think they don't respect the Biden administration. I think that's probably common knowledge by now. So it's more about let's show the rest of the world how weak and, and irrelevant you are. And that is probably a, a precursor to action in Taiwan or some other kind of action. All right, James Gorey, great to hear from you. Thank you so much for your analysis. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Coming up, the alleged hazing scandal at Northwestern takes another turn as eight former football players take action. A day of sun, surf, and quality time with family. The California nonprofit is helping children fight life-threatening illnesses and proving a little fun along the way. More when we return. Now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with an update on the Northwestern football scandal. That's right, Steph. Eight former Northwestern football players have now hired civil rights attorney Ben Crump and law firm Lebanon Perconti to pursue legal action against Northwestern. Crump and the law firm say they've discovered, quote, a vast array of incidents of abuse. The school previously hired an outside law firm back in January to look into hazing allegations and after a six-month investigation, concluded that the claims were largely substantiated. Yet the investigation reportedly didn't find sufficient evidence that the coaching staff knew about it. In response, head coach Pat Fitzgerald was initially given a two-week unpaid suspension on July 7. But just days later, the school newspaper, that is the Daily Northwestern, ran a story detailing allegations from a former player describing the hazing and sex abuse in some detail. Northwestern President Michael Schill then fired Fitzgerald on July 10. In his statement, he said 11 former players acknowledged the hazing incidents. And in NFL news, All-Pro receiver DeAndre Hopkins were reportedly signed with the Tennessee Titans, according to multiple reports. Hopkins is a three-time All-Pro selection who was released by the Arizona Cardinals earlier this offseason. The 31-year-old will reportedly sign a two-year deal for $26 million. Hopkins ranks 36th in NFL history with more than 11,000 career receiving yards. His 700 last year in just half a season were more than any Tennessee player had. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, 10 baseball games are on, including one with the hottest team in the game, the Baltimore Orioles, who've won eight in a row and are now just a game behind division leader Tampa Bay in the AL East. They host the LA Dodgers. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. Now for an uplifting story. A Southern California nonprofit organized a day of surfing and fun for children fighting life-threatening illnesses. NTD's Christina Corona tells us more from Balsa Chica State Beach. 
Many critically ill children often face limitations that prevent them from engaging in activities that other kids can freely enjoy. But Miracles for Kids is giving the magic of childhood back to these ill children and creating memories that they will cherish forever. Miracles for Kids is an Irvine-based nonprofit that provides supportive services to families with critically ill children. On Friday, they hosted their 12th annual Surf and Paddle Camp where they offer a physical and mental rest day for families with a critically ill child with the chance to enjoy a day of sun, surf, and overall quality time together. We spoke with Safira Robertson, a community programs manager with Miracles for Kids, who tells us about the children involved in the surf camp. This is an opportunity for the families to bond and do an activity that they normally wouldn't get to do um, because they're really focused on the treatment of the child on their day-to-day -day routine. But this nonprofit doesn't just host beach days. They are providing even more to help those families in need. For some families, it's their first time at the beach, let alone their first time surfing. We had the chance to speak with Ian Campos, a cancer survivor who shares his road to recovery with Miracles for Kids. I first got treated when I was five years old. That's when cancer started. Um, I was in treatment for three and a half years. Uh, I was in remission for two more years, but then unfortunately I had to do cancer again for like a year or so. And uh, fortunately, I am now in remission and just living a happy life. And Miracle Kids has done a lot. Let's bring us out on this trip uh, for surfing and stuff. Miracles for Kids has been done so much for my family. Uh, they help us go through the situation. They help us like uh, with money to pay rent. And some supportive words for other children who may be fighting a life-threatening illness. I want to tell the other kids that have cancer, don't give up, keep moving, stay strong. For other kids that are in treatment, I hope you do well, don't be scared, and just try to laugh it out. <laughs> Miracles for Kids is dedicated to providing critically ill children with an opportunity to be a kid again, allowing them to experience joy and fun regardless of the challenges they face. Christina Corona, NTD News, Bolsa Chica. If you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.